0: Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. So today we're going to go over um, AC joint injuries. Most of this information is going to be pulled from the current concepts book. Um, If you're following along, that's going to start on page 41 of the fourth edition. Um, We're gonna go over this fairly briefly. I don't think it's as common as some of the other shoulder topics that we've covered and there's some other stuff we wanna be able to get to, but I think it's important enough that we touch on some points from this. So one thing to be aware of with these um, that could tip you off in any kind of case study or patient case would be um, the mechanism of injury. You're gonna see these most often occur as a result of a direct blow or a fall onto the lateral side of the shoulder when that arm is in that adducted position or close to the body. So not usually a a foosh injury. You're gonna see it in motor vehicle accidents and athletes most often that participate in sports such as football, ice hockey, skiing, snowboarding, and bicycling, anything where they're more apt to fall. And in current concepts, they suggest that 40% of shoulder injuries sustained by elite athletes involved, um, involved in competition, contact sports are due to some sort of AC separation or strain. So, with these types of injuries, both the AC and the coracoclavicular ligaments may be involved. So, the AC joint ligament predominantly provides stability in the anterior-posterior plane, and the coracoclavicular ligaments are comprised of the coinoid and the trapezoid, and they provide the majority of the vertical stability and assist in passive scapular motion during arm or shoulder elevation. So the coinoid plays the primary role in constraining anterior and superior rotation as well as anterior and superior displacement of the clavicle. So I think it's important to know, you know, if you're not familiar with the anatomy there, take a look at the picture of those um, and make sure you understand what they're restraining because that could help you with any kind of questions or cases that involve any kind of mechanical, you know, properties or diagnosis. AC injuries are most often going to be Um, diagnosed through a clinical exam and an x-ray for imaging. That's what you're going to see most commonly. Not to say they don't ever do an MRI here, but I think you're going to see an MRI diagnosis really only if it's more of a traumatic injury where they're suspecting other involvement at the shoulder. Um, AC injuries are classified into six different types. Type 1 is described as a sprain of the AC ligament without any tearing. of. um, Type 2 is when the AC ligament and the capsule are ruptured and there's no injury to the coracoclavicular ligaments. The clavicle may sublux up to 50% with a type two AC joint injury. Type three injuries involve complete rupture of the AC and the CC ligaments. And that results in an increase in the coracoclavicular distance. And that's where you're gonna get that visual step off deformity at the lateral shoulder due to the depression of the acromion. So I I think that that's one thing not to get hung up on, but to be aware of. You know, a lot of times we try to classify these injuries based just on what we visually see and how much of a step-off it is. I think you need to keep in mind that, you know, in some people, depending on their body makeup, someone who's just, uh, you know, a female that's maybe more thin, more petite, you're probably going to see a subluxation up to 50% a little bit differently on her than you are, a male who lifts weights, works in construction, something like that that has a lot more muscle definition. So I wouldn't make your diagnosis solely on what you're seeing visually. It's important to visually inspect, but also keep in mind that those grade twos can have up to 50% subluxation and a true step-off deformity won't be until you get to a grade three. Types four through six involve rupture of the AC and the CC ligaments. And there's gonna be varying degrees of soft tissue trauma and displacement with those. So most of these acute injuries are types one through three and they're involved um, with conservative management more often than not. Sometimes you'll see periods of immobilization or what they call an active rest. So pulling them out of certain activities, use of ice, range of motion exercises, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. I would say most often I see over the counter. Um, but not to say you won't see something else. Sometimes too, you will see in more chronic cases, you will see a use of a cortisone injection, but I wouldn't say that's usually the first line of treatment or the most common. So when we talk about conservative management of these, after their pain is a little bit better under control, sometimes the acute episode of this can be very painful for these patients. Um, You know, they may have been mobilized in a sling for any amount of time. They've had their medication the modalities. You're going to, see them in PT to initiate range of motion exercises. And that's gonna be followed by progressive strengthening activities or sport or work specific training, training um, simulations. Um, they suggest in the initial phases of rehab that motions that place an additional stress to the AC joint should be gradually progressed and avoided at first. So those motions would be um, internal rotation behind the back, horizontal adduction, an end-range flexion and extension. So I think, to kind of in that end-range flexion, sometimes uh, end-range scaption, any kind of end-range elevation can bring on some of those symptoms. So you, they also suggest that you should not have any um, downward displacement or significantly limit that if it's not avoidable. And that, you know, I think downward displacement is a hard thing for patients to conceptualize, so you need to put it in a functional term for them. Essentially, there should be no lifting with any kind of weight on that arm. So you don't want to be carrying a suitcase, carrying a toolbox, carrying any weights, anything where that arm is kind of being distracted or downward in, into that downward displacement. Um, scapular exercises, which we've talked a lot about in all of these shoulder podcast episodes. You know, we've gone through a few different scapular progressions. Um, those in these cases should be initiated very early. Um specifically into retraction and to work on muscle endurance, that's where you're going to be able to progress the active range of motion and shoulder height. You know, with these patients, and I've seen this clinically, um, if you have anything to add alexis, you can chime in, but Mm -hmm. if you just give them range of motion exercises and they don't have good scapular control, you're just going to be creating an impingement and irritation up there. So I generally have a lot more success with these patients, even before I do a lot of elevation range of motion work, to really work on their scapular control. And it's usually a lot more tolerable in those acute phases. Do you have anything on that, Alexis, that you wanted to add in terms of how you typically start rehab for these folks? No, no, I, I definitely agree. Okay. Uh, One thing I think that for some clinicians may be a little counterintuitive, um, closed chain activities against a wall or a table and quadruped, you know, kind of (laughs) varying the amount of weight that you want to put through the upper extremities or into the arms for these folks. Um, can be more easily tolerated. They often do better with some of those closed-chain positions. So just keep that in mind. You know, you can start on a stable surface without much weight through the upper extremities, progress to a stable surface with more weight through the upper extremities, and then work them onto a more unstable surface, like a therapy ball or something of that nature. Um, Then after they're good in the closed-chain, they have good control, um, pretty asymptomatic. That's when you should really begin strengthening with the use of resistance bands or weights or any kind of use of manual resistance. So many studies demonstrate that there's no advantage of an operative treatment over non-operative treatment for type 1 through 3 injuries. Um, Studies involving elite throwing athletes suggest AC joint anatomic reduction is not really necessary. So basically this study took um, elite throwing athletes and looked at whether they were surgically repaired or fixated into a more ideal anatomical position, um, cosmetically reduced anything that was any step off deformity and realized they didn't do that much better, if any better, than the non-operative management. So uh, they also note that studies that have shown that with a period of immobilization followed by gradual range of motion and strengthening exercises, return to work and sport specific activities can occur quicker in conservatively treated patients. However, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Treated quicker and conservatively treated patients. However, surgically treated patients generally are more satisfied with their subjective report of shoulder pain, mobility, and appearance. And I think just in my experience, um, the step-off deformity can be something for some patients to wrap their head around. Um, some of them are perpetually bothered by that. You know, they can't get used to that. You know, it's sim- you know when they're wearing certain clothing, it's visible. So I think some patients get hooked hooked on that, and it's a visual deformity that then sometimes I think can contribute to some pain reports, whether or not it's truly affecting function. Um, I have a lot of patients tell me, well, it's not fixed. You know, they want to see that it's fixed, even if their function's restored. So I think that's sometimes where you're going to have to provide a lot of patient education to encourage them, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be in this perfect anatomical position for you to have full function. Um, One thing I wanted to mention that they know in the current concept specifically that I think often goes unannounced in these patients, but There was one study that looked at 34 patients with chronic AC injuries, usually over two years of duration for injury, and they looked at their relationship between cervical spine pain and their AC injury, and they found a higher prevalence of cervical hyperlordosis and more cervical symptoms in the chronic AC joint injury group compared to the control group. So I think that just speaks to the fact that, you know, you, you may see these not in the acute phase, you may see them in the chronic phase. Um, you know, sometimes they do well for a period of time, they get most of the way there after their acute episode, and then they're referred maybe a year later, two years later for PT, and they're having more chronic issues related to the dysfunction there that maybe wasn't ever fully rehabbed. And I think it's important in these folks to also look at their neck, not to ignore it. You know, potentially their posture has changed or they've compensated for their previous injury. Just keep an eye out for their neck. It's It's an easy screen. Um, You may find that they do really well if you incorporate some stuff at the neck rather than going kind of right after their shoulder. One thing I want to bring your attention to on the bottom of page 42 of the current concepts is Table 7. And they just outline a four-phase approach for treatment of AC injuries, essentially what we just talked about above. Phase 1 is going to be your mobilization, your modalities for pain management, your active assistive motion. And they suggest that Progression of phase two is appropriate. Range of motion is 75% full. There's minimal tenderness on palpation. And the strength should be between four and a half to five for delt and upper trap. Phase two is talking about restoring full range of motion. You're gonna continue with strengthening in phase two, avoiding those provocative exercises that we talked about some of those positions. And they say progress to phase three, phase three when range of motion is pain free. And strength is 75% of the uninvolved side. So just make sure you're screening their uninvolved side to really see how different they are. Phase three, you're going to progress strengthening of all the shoulder musculature into those provocative positions, certainly doing so gradually, being mindful of their level of irritability. And then they suggest progression to phase four when the motion is full and painless and strength is close to 100%. Phase four, as I'm sure you can guess, is just working on the progression of the sport-specific or um, work-specific activities. And that's where you're going to return to throwing for any of your that are treating throwing athletes. It's going to happen in that phase four. They don't really outline a set timeline. I think, again, this is one of those injuries. I think it can be variable depending on what grade they are and their level of irritability. So you're just going to kind of have to use your clinical judgment to gauge that. So currently the standard practice is that patient should be involved with conservative interventions for at least three months, and then after that, if they're still symptomatic or functional limitations persist, is when surgical intervention would be considered. Sometimes surgeons will consider it sooner if there's a significant visual deformity, and they need to perform a heavy labor. They need to sustain a repetitive shoulder activity for their work. Um, overhead athletes that have issues, or those type four to five, four to six injuries may. Um, warrant surgery sooner than that three-month mark, but generally that three-month mark of conservative treatment. So, surgery has provided good outcomes. Um, However, there's some complications that I think are important to know. They've specifically mentioned um, hardware migration, infection, nerve injuries, coracoid or clavicular fractures, or the need for further surgery. You know, if they have a hardware failure, they may need to have it redone, and that's certainly not an ideal outcome. Um, Page 43 and 44 talk a lot about the surgical approaches. Um, I personally don't feel like it's the most important thing to get into. It's very involved in anatomy and they talk about different um, pulling away techniques and stuff so I think I'm just gonna mention the four main surgical options so you're aware of them. If it's something that you want to know more about I would say Current Concepts is probably your go-to and they'd start that on page 43. So the four main types of surgical options for these reconstructions, the first one's gonna be primary fixation using the hardware of the suture wires with or without ligament repair reconstruction. The second is gonna be primary fixation at the CC interval with or without AC ligament repair reconstruction. The third one is a distal clavicle excision with or without the CC ligament repair or the coracochromial ligament transfer. And the fourth one is a muscle transfer with or without the distal clavicle excision. Honestly, like I said, you know, for my experience in practice, I've really only seen the um, primary fixation using the hardware of the suture wires without the ligament repair. Um, And the couple cases like that I've seen have been successful. So the thing to know with these different um, surgical patients is that post-operative rehabilitation is really going to vary among the different procedures, and it's really going to be Um, surgeon specific. For all of them though, you are going to see a period of immobilization. They're usually going to be in that platform brace or pillow to support the weight of the extremity and minimize the vertical load to the reconstruction site. Um, On page 45, there's table eight and that outlines again a table that goes through the three phases of post-operative rehabilitation for these folks. In general, you're going to see a strict platform brace in immobilization for six to eight weeks They're only allowed to remove their brace for self-care activities and limited passive range of motion. After that eight week mark, they're gonna come out of their brace. That's when formal therapy will be initiated and it's to decrease that post-operative stiffness by using active assistive range of motion and manual techniques. Um, There's a cautious progression into horizontal adduction, um, behind the back reaching for internal rotation and end range uh, forward elevation. Strengthening may begin with closed chain activities, particularly focusing on scapular control again with, that, um, uh, with the fixed hand position. They expect full range of motion with the except, exception of internal rotation behind the back um, by 10 weeks. And from weeks 12 to 18 is when you're going to start to include that isotonic strengthening with resistance band and cables. So if you just briefly compare those outside of any specific protocol, you're going to see that the post-operative recovery recovery phases are very similar to the conservative management. You just have that delayed healing in the beginning to allow anything that was surgically reconstructed to really heal. Um, Like I said, the research isn't really pointing to a lot more success with surgery. It's really done for delayed functional return. you know, occasionally for a severe step-off, that kind of thing. But a step-off alone that has minimal pain and full function, you're not really going to see surgical interventions. So that's kind of a quick wrap-up on AC joints. Um, You know, again, I think it fits in. You will see it maybe with some other shoulder diagnoses. Um, But if anyone has any specific questions about AC joints, you're always welcome to email us. Um, After this, that kind of wraps up our um, review of the shoulder we're going to move back into low back. You know, we fielded a lot of questions and emails on some low back stuff, some of the not straightforward stuff that is covered on spine. Um, And I think it would just be helpful for all of you for us to circle back on some of that. So the next episode that we're going to do, we're going to go over some of the psychosocial barriers, identifying different flags in those cases and stuff. You know, I've seen a lot of posts in the MedBridge site about people that aren't sure like what's a priority and how do I determine and you know I don't think that's always black and white but hopefully we can give you some pointers on different things to be looking for in certain cases um, both clinically and to prepare for your test that may help you decide um do you have anything you want to add on that Alexis No I mean I think the AC joint stuff is pretty straightforward and like you said I spine such a huge portion of the the test so we definitely want to touch back on that so we'll going to get that going next week thank you all right thanks